This is Short-Term Rental Management, the show that is all about short-term rental property management with your host, yours truly, Luke Carl. Showtime, Short-Term Rental Management, the Reverend of Real Estate preaching it today on Short-Term Rental Management. I'm so psyched you're here. It is a great day. I love you. We're going to talk about cash flow. We're going to talk about how we can make our properties better, increase our income, and be total rock stars. Today's guest, Bobby Harrington, awesome dude. He's an ultra runner, which is one of my favorite uh, things about him. I love running, man. And this guy's story is the craziest I've ever heard, quite frankly. So thanks for being here. I love you. And uh, I look forward to the hang after a moment from this week's sponsor. Join me live every Thursday for a weekly Q&A all about short-term rental. You like my vibe? If you're digging the long hair extraordinaire Cashflow Carl and want to ask me questions in real time, join me at strquestions.com. It's a lot of fun. strquestions.com. All right, here we go. We did it. We made it. It is uh, it is great to be here, and uh, it's going to be a heck of a show today, man. I'm very excited. I've got a lot in common with this gentleman, um, uh, mostly just because he's really good looking. All right, I'm kidding, but uh, <laughs> ultra runner, uh, ma- massive, massive running resume, and, a, and a, a spiritual leader with his church, and also um, obviously in in uh, real estate. Uh, Bobby, how you doing, buddy? Where are you? What do you know? Good man. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Super uh, honored to be here. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you uh, that you're really good looking too. I don't know how <laughs> we're supposed to do this, but uh, yeah, man, super. Yes, super stoked to be here. Uh, I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, which is where I live, and then um, we invest and do kind of different stuff, uh, kind of all over the place. Okay, cool. Greensboro. You born and raised? No, actually, I was born in Tampa, Florida. All right, and Tampa. so grew up there, um, love being from Florida. And then actually after I graduated from college, uh, I went to school for business, business marketing. And then, uh, you know, after college started getting, uh, involved in, you know, some nonprofit ministry stuff and wanted to go to seminary, uh, didn't know what I, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And so moved to North Carolina for seminary. And then I've, I've been here, my wife and I, we've been here for 16 years uh, in either Raleigh, Durham or uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where we live now. And how did you get involved with the church? Always your whole life been involved with the church or? No, I actually didn't. It didn't really even start going to church until I was a teenager. Uh, I had some friends invite me to church and then, you know, kind of went through college, the normal kind of college thing that a lot of people do. A uh, little bit of church, a little bit of partying and you know just didn't kind of know what direction I was kind of going with my life and then I don't know just had a moment at some point where I just felt like man I could go just try to like you know make money and be successful in my life but I felt drawn to I don't know try to try to help people with like a deeper purpose deeper meaning in life and so that's that's kind of what drew me to um you know eventually starting a church uh which you know, I did with some friends of mine, uh, kind of co-founder of a church uh, a little over 11 years ago. Okay. And uh, it's grown pretty big, right? This is a, a, a very successful organization. Yeah. So when we started, it literally, uh, I was 29. Uh, the Our other pastor, Pastor Andrew, he was, he was the same age. 
And it was us, our wives, and like some college students. There's 30 people uh, moved to a brand new city. None of us lived in Greensboro, moved to a brand new city. And now over the last 11 years, uh, the church, by God's grace, it's crazy. I mean, has grown to, you know, we're 3,000 people now and we have six locations and uh, doing really awesome stuff all over the world. Uh, our church has a huge uh, adoption, foster care ministry and mm. starting new churches all over the world. So um, yeah, it's it's really awesome. Super, I've been super honored to be a part of it. That's really awesome. I love that. That's great. So you would consider that, I guess, the quote unquote, for lack of a better way to put it, the day job. A little bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. And you, uh, your first investment in real estate was uh, long-term, uh, was it not? You still have that? Where is it? Yeah, we do. Uh, you know, it, it's funny how the real estate cycles work. When I moved to a seminary, we bought uh, a house, uh, a really nice uh, townhouse in Raleigh-Durham. And it was right before the real estate market crashed, literally. Uh, and so six months later, uh, this was like 07, 08, real estate market crashed. Uh, my wife and I, we were just newlyweds. And so once we caught the vision to move to start another church, there was no way, uh, there was no way we can get out of it. Like we could have short sold it or whatever back then, but mm. um, just because it cut, the value was like cut in half. That was kind of our, that was kind of our entryway into real estate, um, which is cool though, because, you know, we learned to, you know, find a tenant and have somebody in there and manage it from a city that we're not living in. And, it's so funny now the value of that, you know, 16 years later uh, is, you know, double uh, than what we bought it for, which is really cool. You know, we we rode, we bought it for like 150, wrote it down to like 90. Now it's worth like 300, which is just, you know, cool the way, the way real estate works. So mm-hmm. that was our, that was our entry into real estate really just by accident, not by any sort of strategy. Are you noticing any resemblance in the current economy to what it was uh, back then? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I feel like it's. I feel like it's just different. Um, you know, obviously when the, the the market crashed, that was a deflationary crisis. Um, obviously, all asset prices were going up then too. But I don't know. It just feels like way more of like an inflationary crisis now, like it wasn't like the eighties. You know, where you know I read stuff back then. It's like as soon as they soon as they take the foot off the gas in terms of raising rates, prices would just continue to go back up. So yeah, I don't know. It's hard to imagine like a massive deflationary, you know, but who knows? <laughs> well, give me, give me a one or two minute. Uh, what, what's your prediction on where this thing is going and what does it look like? Uh, uh, can we, are we going to be able to find some deals here anytime soon? Or what, what, what do you think the next year or two looks like? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a macroeconomics, you know, like I love that stuff. Um, This is just totally my guess. To me, it just feels like it's going to just continue kind of what's been happening. I mean, it's an inflationary crisis. You know, you you put all of this uh, money into the system. It has nowhere else to go. All asset prices go up. There's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines with cash. You know, they continue to raise rates to try to get things to kind of go back down. And, you know, I think houses are sitting on the market longer, but it doesn't seem to me like prices are going just like crazy, crazy down. And it just felt like if, you know, all of a sudden rates go back to 5% or whatever, I just feel like people are just going to be buying like crazy. Mm. And there's not much inventory. And there's a bit, it feels to me, there's a bit of a building crisis as, as somebody who's done different construction stuff, even with our church. It's just hard to imagine like it was in, you know, 07, 08, all of a sudden, you know, 40%, 50% uh, 
uh, price cut, you know? Yeah. It just seems like, it seems like it's a crisis, but it's a crisis on the other side, you know? And when you, when you print all that money, it's basically just a, you know, it's a tax for the poor. If you don't own any assets, you're having to pay rent, your food prices are going up, you know, it's just, and I don't know, it's like, man, you do that over multiple years, that that can't just be reversed simply without just absolutely crushing the economy. Um, I mean, I guess they could let rates just go to 20% and hope, hope things would just kind of crash and all the prices would correct, but that would just be That'd be bad. It feels like that'd be bad for everybody. Well, let's not forget that the U.S. government is paying more interest than any, than anybody. You know, I mean, it's I heard it's a, I heard a billion bucks a day right now is what they're paying because of the interest rates has doubled. You know, um, and I, I think I agree. You know, again, I'm not. This is not a political uh, or even an economical show in any way. But I think right. I agree. I think things are going to just kind of cruise the way they are right now. Where you know, and another thing, let's talk about same auto industry. You know, same thing there. It was like it was two, three years ago. You could go, go buy a car and sell it six months later for more than what you paid for it. And now, all of a sudden, real life is back. And I think people are uh, forgetting that that was not real. You know, and I think that people like were being a little more, uh, you know, kind of just like nonchalant with their money, just throwing stuff around a little bit. Like, oh, no big deal. I can sell this thing for more money in six months. And and now it's like everybody's got an extra car in their driveway that nobody cares about. Nobody wants anything to do with it right now because every part, every car lot in America is completely jam packed with cars. Right. And, you know, and I think it's going to sit like that for, you know, maybe around Christmas time or early spring. And then I think finally you're going to, uh, I've got a car for sale. I'm guilty of it. I've got one in the driveway that I, I'm like, whatever this, why did we get this thing? Let's get rid of it. Yeah, um, and nobody is barking at me at all to get that thing, you know. And I think that that's probably going to be like that for a little while, and then, you know, I think we're we'll slide back into some sort of sense of normal, uh, maybe right. around March or April. But uh, I don't, I don't know, man. Who knows? Um, let's talk running real quick. Uh, and I know yeah. it's just between you and me uh, for the outside world. Uh, running is the most boring subject on the planet if you're not a runner, but uh, that's tough crap because you got two really uh, accomplished runners here, especially you, Bobby. I mean, you're, uh, you know, you're you're basically, uh, you know, a, a real deal elite uh, ultra runner. Uh, so talk to me about your career there. How did that get started, and and uh, and where where is it? You know, lead me all the way through today. Yeah, so um, kind of going way back. I was always inspired growing up. Uh, my dad in 1977 swam a mission across the English Channel as part of the Special Forces. Uh, it was actually the first uh, team that ever swam across the English Channel together. So I grew up kind of hearing those stories. And he was just, you know, a mindset and endurance just beast. And so um, I always knew I kind of had that in me a little bit, just like almost what I would just say, like an endurance gene. And, um, I, so I always ran after college and stuff, but it, it actually was a little bit later in life. Um, when I was around like 30 that I really got into the ultra running stuff. I love to be outdoors. I love to be in the mountains and I didn't even know it, it existed. You know, I just did kind of like, you know, a lot of stuff you're doing, just running marathons and stuff, you know? And then I, I connected with some guys one day that they're like, Oh yeah, we're training for a hundred miler. And I was like, well, you can't run. I was like a human being can't run a hundred miles. You know, I was like, there's no way. And so I signed up for a 50K race, which is 31 miles. 
after I did that, I was like, there's no way I could run a hundred miles. I was like, there's, there's no way. I mean, I was, I was popping ibuprofen afterwards and just practically crying. I was, I was just in bad shape, but you know, just like life is, I don't know. One thing led to another and then uh, started doing longer races. And at some point I realized I was like, man, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I should like, I mean, I'm not going to like, you know, go try to make money being an ultra runner or something, you know, there's like probably a, only a couple of people in the world that can do that. But I was like, I could run out of like a pretty high national competitive level. And so just, it was more of a mental shift of like, I'm going to go see what I can do. And I'm going to go try to train like more like a professional runner and just kind of see what happens. So I've had some, I've had some, you know, top, top three results at some big hundred mile races, um, all across the country. So yeah, fun, fun stuff. Ultra running teaches you so much about life and business and, and really about mindset and elevating your mindset because I mean, you know, you tell someone you run a hundred miles and people are like, well, how many days does that take? And you're like, no, no, no. Like one day, like less, like less than a day. Like people can't even conceive, you know? So it's really an exercise and, you know, in increasing what you believe you can actually do. Um, so that's really why I do it. Not for the competition, but just to see how much I can get out of myself. Yeah, well, most ultra people I have met are uh, fairly awkward uh, and and hard to have a conversation with. So, uh, bravo for being a normal person. Uh, uh, but uh, how many how many hundreds have you done? Uh, I've done seven uh, hundred mile races. And then uh, I would assume there's m many other ultras underneath there, fifty milers and fifty yeah. k's, etc. Uh, too many to yeah. count. Or? Yeah, a ton of them. Um, most of those are all mountain races, like big time mountain races, like twenty five thousand feet of gain. Um, I've only done one flat race I did last October, Javelina 100. It's one of the biggest 100 mile races in the US. And I uh, I got sixth place. I ran uh, 15 hours for 100 miles, which is mm. nine minute mile pace, Dang. including including all the breaks. Um, I'll tell you what, that hurt worse than any other. Mm. I've run 100 miles that took 29 hours. This took 15 hours and hurt way worse because mm. basically ran every single step, no hiking, no walking. Um, and it's in the, it's in the desert outside of, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. You changed shoes during the event. Uh, I didn't know. Um, uh, a Thank lot of people shoes. will, a lot of people will, but, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's time, you know, it, it is a, it is a clocked race when you're trying to compete. So on the mountain races where you're running through rivers and stuff, yeah, probably will, you know, change the shoes a couple of times, but this is, this was desert race. So. Wow. But uh, no, no full marathons. That's not your thing. No, I mean, I've, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will do some marathon stuff, but yeah, that's not really, I'll do a marathon in training, uh, go out and do like a training run, but, right. uh, but it's going to be on I'd the love to train. I'd love to train and do a fast marathon at some point before I get too, too old. So I'm 40. I just turned 40. Um, so I still got some decent speed in my legs. So I'd love to maybe see if I can go out and run, I don't know, under two thirty or something would be really awesome. Very little um, road running at all, or mostly mostly trail. Um, yeah, I mean it's mostly trail, but like I I have a running team, like a youth running team. My boys are on. Um, they run track and field, and they run cross country. So we um, I'll do stuff with them. You know, we'll do track workouts and road workouts and that sort of thing. We're in cross country season right now. Um, they did uh they did track this last season and went to the uh, track and field national championships in Eugene, Oregon, over the summer. <laughs> So that was that was really really awesome. 
Okay, great, great. Yeah, I'm definitely more of a full guy. I've done two ultras. I did qualify for Western States at a 50 miler that I did. I I beat the the. In other words, I qualified to register for uh, yeah. Western States. Then you got to do the lotto, which I did not. Uh, I got real close to clicking that button. I'll never forget. Uh, I remember where I was when that was happening, and uh, and I said, you know what? I don't think I can. I don't think I'm ready for this. Um, so never did it. But I've done a 50k, a 150 miler, and a 50, actually Avery did the 50 miler with me. Um, and uh, oh, really, yeah, yeah, she's done a 50, and I've I've also done a 50 150k. So two ultras for me, but uh, a whole crap load of uh, I got 27 full marathons under my belt. Wow. But, uh, well, you should uh, you should come hang out for a hundred miler one time and just kind of see. Kind of suck the, me in, huh? It's pretty awesome. Pretty yeah. awesome environment for sure. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So let's talk about the short term thing. Um, uh, you know, you, you at some point got hooked up with the shop and and bought uh, at least one or two with us. But uh, I think you you were involved before that, right? When when did you get into short term and what and what capacity? Um. So I got into sh- I think in. 2021 i think or maybe the end of 2020 um i've always we've loved going to short-term rentals so like i'm one of these people that like yeah it's a business but we just we just love we love going to mountain towns we love going to short-term rentals like i don't know it's just our thing we've liked that for a long time you know like in the summer we'll go to colorado or arizona and stay at a bunch of different short-term rentals and so I always kind of had it in me like, man, I, I think I could do pretty good, like buying these and managing them and mm. designing and decorating and just kind of all the stuff just because we really like it. Like just we just we really like the the hospitality side and everything. So uh, we bought one basically right across the street from our house where we live in Greensboro, North Carolina. It felt like my wife's a little bit more risk averse than I am. I love I love taking risks and stuff. She's a little bit more risk averse. So I was like, hey, let's just buy one right across the street. It feels like simple. We can manage it. You know, if it don't work out, we'll just put a long-term renter there. And she already understood that because we already had a long-term rental. And then eventually we um, decided, uh, I think I heard Avery on the Bigger Pockets podcast years ago, like mm. like many people did on the one she did probably three years ago, maybe. And Episode already, 364 on the Bigger Pockets yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard so many people reference that. I always had that in my back pocket. Hey, that'd be a great place to invest over there. And we love to go run over there, like uh, in the Smoky Mountains National Park. Like I've done a bunch of different loops over there and up to Mount Macon, a bunch of different stuff. So I was like, this would just be super, super cool. So I think we went through you guys and bought, uh, I think, the beginning of 2021. So but you already had the one going in Greensboro. Yep. Okay. Uh-huh. Is that more of a, of a residential, like maybe not a, what does that look like there? Is it a town? Yeah, it's it's just outside of town, um, but it's it's weird, you know. Like I I didn't know how it would work, but I don't know any decent sized town. People just travel here for all sorts of stuff, you know. It could be a midterm, very easily nurses and that sort of thing. But honestly, it's just a regular short term. Like, hey, I'm here to take care of my mom who's in a nursing home. Hey, I'm mm-hmm. here for a wedding. Hey, I'm here for a graduation. Oh, my kid's got a soccer tournament down the street. Like, you know, it's just it's crazy. I mean, we'll yeah. have like. 80% occupancy for the year. I mean, through the winter and everything. I do feel that there is a need uh, for more of exactly what you're doing in the world. The problem there is, and, I, and I, I don't know if you agree, but there's too many people that stink at this. And what they'll do is they'll just 
put it on Airbnb or they'll, or some, some landlord that's sick of being a landlord will rent it to somebody else who puts it on Airbnb. And there's just too many people that don't really care about the neighbors or the neighborhood. And that's where, and again, I'm not saying that there's too many, but this is what you, where in, in the news, it gets a bad rap, right? This is where you get all these uh, news uh, uh, articles about Airbnb this and Airbnb that. But a guy like you doing it the way you're doing it, even though you are kind of in a town there with that first one, um, man, I see a huge need for that in the world. I really do. I mean, if I if this existed like where my parents live, I would do I would jump all over it. It doesn't exist there, um, and I don't know if, if it's because you know a lot of it I have have to feel is because somebody did it wrong, got in trouble, the cops called on them and things like that, um, and yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of crappy landlords out there. There really are, you know, but, uh, yeah. but I, I feel that there is a bigger need for, for exactly what you're talking about. Um, in, in like kind of a, you know, urban or, or maybe, a, a slightly rural areas, just regular old towns, maybe not even tourist destinations, uh, for a house. Cause I want a washer and dryer. Damn it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can I get a washer and dryer? Do I have to stay right. in this little tiny box? And, right. um, and what's the big deal, you know, but, um, yeah. So yeah, and, totally. And, yeah. Then, then things, then things started to get exciting. You came to the shop, uh, ended up buying, well, I'm just going to let you tell the story. Cause this is, this is just like absolutely mind blowing what happens next. Crazy. So, um, I think we probably bought at the absolute like heat of the market, you know, where people were just like crazy offers, um, you know, man, I'll pay X amount over, even if the appraisal don't come in, you know? So I think that was like, I think we were going through that process, um, end of 21 first, no. Yeah. Yeah. End of 20, end of 21, first couple months of 21. Mm. Um, it, I mean, rates were crazy low, which was, which was cool, but you know, it took a bunch of different offers, um, to eventually, yeah, it was begin end of 21, beginning of 22 is when we were looking. And so we finally found something. And uh, you know, that was just a crazy time, you know, it's just because we're like, oh, we'll pay, you know, whatever X amount over what it's gonna appraise for. And I don't think it's crazy like that anymore. Hold but on, uh, let me slow you down. What brought that on? Why were there so many people? And I want to apologize on behalf of the short-term shop. We were so busy at that time, we couldn't even sleep. I mean, it was insane. Hopefully, you had an amazing experience. <laughs> uh, but, uh, man, uh, it was just nuts. What, what brought that on? Why were so many, and it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just short-term. Okay. We're just super immersed in short-term. It was everything. It was long-term rentals. It was primary homes. Anything that had a front door was on fire. Uh, and what's, what's your, uh, what's your take on that? I mean, to me, it just has to be the money printing, mm -hmm. the rates and the asset and, and all the prices going up. So if I'm like a one example, like, uh, you know, we, we love to be outdoors. So we had a, we had a camper and I had a truck I pulled it with. Well, I started seeing the prices of that stuff. I'm like, I'm selling this thing now. I'm like, I'm selling the camper. I'm selling the truck now. So they're both three year old, three years old. I, I get more for them than what I bought them for, uh -huh. which who buys a camper brand new three years later, sells it for more money. I'm like, I'm going to put this into real estate because that feels safer than having it in a camper. And so I just took that money. I mean, we got 2.7% on the interest rate, mm. which is just, I mean, wild, you know? Yeah. So 
I have to believe there was just so many people like me that just kind of, you know. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. You nailed it. You were, uh, you know, you're, you're the, you're the, the, the wheelhouse, right? And that period of time, I mean, it was like, I bought this, a camper, exactly what you just said. It's absolutely mind blowing that you could sell a camper for more than what you <laughs> paid for it. I mean, how in the hell did that happen? Okay, cool, cool. So uh, yeah, well, what happens next? Hey guys, if you're enjoying the content of our podcast, but you have additional short-term rental questions, we host a weekly live question session that you guys can join for free. It's at 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. And if you head over to strquestions.com, you can sign up. So not only am I the host of this show, but I also own and manage my own properties. And I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have about short-term rental investing. So please join us anytime for a free weekly live Q&A on Zoom. Sign up at strquestions.com. Yeah, we get uh, we get under contract. Um, I mean, everything went generally smooth with the purchase. Um, you know, I, I was able to connect uh, with the seller after we bought it. She, she was awesome. She, she had been... The house had two previous owners and it had been a short-term rental for a long time, which that made me really comfortable. Where um, was this one? Uh, in Pigeon Forge. Oh, Pigeon Forge. Okay. Yeah. Just kind of the west side of Pigeon Forge as you head towards like Weir's Valley. I know exactly where it is, but I'm just creating a, a little illusion yeah. there for the listener. But yeah, go yeah. ahead. I have one right down so, the street, but go ahead. It, it was, um, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I even though we hadn't seen it ahead of time, except pictures and stuff, I felt like it had some of the, some of the, um, intangible stuff you know it has an unobstructed view uh you know it's it's kind of sitting on top of a mountain kind of hanging over the mountain really cool house so i just thought it was going to be really really awesome um you know being our first one we just invested a bunch of time and energy uh kind of de-grandmawing the house you know mm-hmm. uh just removing some of the r i mean the house itself was fine but just kind of making it feel a little bit more like a house we would want to go stay in you know like a house that's going to have good pictures on Airbnb, you know? So we probably spent, you know, a month kind of doing that, you know, and when you're doing it yourself, it's, you know, it's such hard work to get one of those like fully online, uh, you know, that's not new construction. You're not paying someone to furnish it when you're just Mm -hmm. kind of doing it all yourself. So we busted our tails, uh, getting that thing ready and getting it online. And, uh, you almost can't, you almost can't make up what happens next. Um, so it was it was a stressful kind of period. Um, we were busting our tails to get that online. Um, six months prior, I just think this is kind of applicable to the story. Um, my little brother passes away in like a very tragic, a very tragic way. Um, he had dealt with uh, addiction for many, many years. He's 30 years old. Uh, that happened September the year before. And um, we get this house online and I was dealing with some health issues. I think just long-term, not long-term, just effects of grief I was dealing with, you know, I was super healthy running and eating and all that, but I was just struggling, just like could hardly stay awake, brain fog, all this stuff. So, uh, our board at the church, they're like, Hey, won't you take a couple of weeks off, like totally off, go somewhere, you're, go somewhere you love you know, uh, just try to just chill out, you know, and, 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 and this corresponded with, uh, the first week that we were having the first renter in our house. (laughs) So 
we went over to the mountains of uh, North Carolina and Brevard, North Carolina, and we had our first renter over in Pigeon Forge. And I'm just trying to decompress, you know, everything I've been dealing with. And we go into the mountains one day and run and we didn't have a signal or whatever. And I get back uh, to the house we were renting and I have a text message or maybe it was an Airbnb. No, I think it was actually a text message from the person that was renting it. And we actually have become um, friends now <laughs> uh, a year and a half later. She's like, hey, uh, we were at uh, Dollywood for the day and apparently, you know, there's a fire and they've shut the neighborhood down. They shut the whole area down. And I don't know. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm such an optimist. I'm like, whatever, you know, like, man, it's it's probably gonna be fine, you know? Um, well, you know, then like a another day goes by. We still haven't found out like what's going on. They can't get back to the neighborhood. It's a family of five from Michigan. They're down for spring break. Um, all their stuff is at the house. Where did they go? They they were just at Dollywood for the day and, and they they had to go buy clothes and try to find a hotel. Oh and my. They didn't want to drive back to Michigan because all their kids had their you know devices and laptops and they had a car carrier that had, they had taken off their van that was at the house. And so they're like, man, we're just going to hang out here for a couple of days. Um, well, it takes almost three full days. And we finally find out, man, our house freaking burnt to the ground. Um, so in our neighborhood, I think around 55 houses burned down, but half the neighborhood was totally untouched by the fires. Um, the other half of the neighborhood, like my street, which is on top of this ridge, I mean, there's nothing but block foundations left. I mean, I mean nothing. I don't even know where the stuff went. I guess it just like evaporated uh, into the sky. And but it took us three days to find that out that the ha house actually burned down. So you could just imagine. I mean, what a nightmare. Mm. Um, you know, I had I had convinced my wife, hey, we're gonna go invest over there. It's gonna be awesome. Don't worry. Uh, it's going to be great. And then uh, house burns down. So, okay. A million questions. First of all, I'm so sorry uh, on for all of that stuff. Uh, this is a difficult period of time here in your life. I was, I am, I am familiar with this scenario, um, not only because of you and, and other uh, clients of the short-term shop, but I had a house right down the street. Uh, I remember when this was going on, um, watching my ring camera yeah, and the smoke was just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden my ring camera just was gone. So I, I had no reason to believe that I had a house left. Uh, luckily I did. I got lucky. My, my house was just on the other side of what we would call a ridge in East Tennessee from where yours was. And, um, the, they, I found out later that they, um, purposely turned the, the, uh, the power, power off. To, to save things, you know, make from keep things from getting worse. Right. And so that was my camera and my house was fine. It was completely covered in, you know, ashes and such. But uh, I mean, I was right next to you pretty much. And um, and so that was my experience with this situation. Um, can you can you tell us, uh, at least to your recollection, what what started it and why why this fire was even there? I think they ultimately said I think they said a power line uh, fell down. I the one thing I do know, because we were we were right across the mountains, like in North Carolina, about an hour and a half away, it was crazy high winds, like 50, 60 mile an hour winds, um, just like wild. So I think 
uh, somehow the power line or something started. And then with winds like that, I mean, it just was like uncontrollable for a full probably two days. Uh, so the fire was just like spreading like crazy. So in my neighborhood, I've kind of driven all around and you could you could see where it came into the neighborhood because it kind of came into the back side of the neighborhood. And you could just I mean, it would just get along these ridges and just just kind of go right along the whole ridge. And then like in the valley, there wouldn't be any any damage at all. So crazy. Uh, let's say I'm completely unfamiliar with this area. Um, would you would you recommend or would you suggest that this is a possibility of happening again? Or was this a fluke? Man, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I know some of the areas around there. I mean, they say they're, um, you know, like with insurance and stuff. Oh, this is high fire risk. But I don't know. I don't know if that's because man, there just was a fire, you know, or like the Gatlinburg fires and for the next 50 years, this is high fire risk. I don't know. I don't know the likelihood of this continuing to happen or not. I really have no idea. Yeah. So, and, and again, we should bring that up. Uh, Bobby, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, in 2016, there was a huge fire in the area, um, much bigger than the one that Bobby uh, had to deal with here. Um, and uh, it was bad. We, we lost lives. Um, there were, uh, I didn't, but there were lives lost um, and uh, thousands, a few thousand properties were burned down. Um, and that one was actually caused by humans. There was some kids playing with matches in the park, believe it or not. And it like it just got it was a drought, um, which can definitely happen. It's not also yeah. really not common. Tennessee is a, is I, I have actually looked it up. It's this number six most rain in the United States. So it is a very rainy state. But it's it can't believe, happen. Yeah. Um, and what it was just bad timing with that 2016 fire. That one was absolutely horrible. And then yeah. yours was a very similar situation where there was drought and um, and the wells are going dry and and then uh, a fire starts and, and man, you get a fire going. It's hard to put that out, you know. So, but me personally, again, being in the area, a lot of roots in the area. I think that both of them were just kind of freak of nature situations where I don't think it's going to be repeated. But again, you're dealing with an area that has a tremendous amount of trees uh, and yeah. firewood. It's all firewood, you know? And um, and if it doesn't rain, bad things can happen. But again, I think both of these uh, scenarios, even though they were really in the grand scheme of things, not that far apart, um, not likely to happen again, but you never know. You mentioned insurance. How did that work, man? I mean, I... Oh, I can't imagine how stressful that scenario was. I don't think we want to name names or anything. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's your story. You tell me what you want. But uh, what, how did that whole thing play out? So honestly, I, I think that was much smoother than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I had the, you know, I, I, of course, when it happened, I'm on vacation. So I'm just like all night on Google, you know, how does insurance work, you know, when your house burns down and just like, types of insurance and I'm going and reading the policies. Cause you know, we don't ever think about this stuff until it actually happens. And most people never have a house burned down. So they actually were great to work with. I mean, uh, I got to check for contents like right away within a day or two, which was nice. Um, thank God I had like a loss of use kind of commercial policy. So it took about a month but I actually worked with the with with the seller and she was really great because she was able to go in and produce. Here's what the house um, did last year through rents, 
uh, over a 12 month period. And so I was able to take that to them and basically said, Hey, the loss of use that I have as part of the insurance, I feel like I should get the max amount because look, here's what it did last year. And a fair assumption is that it would, it would do the same thing. So within in about a month, I was able to get a loss of use check, which was really great. Uh, we basically poured all that back into rebuilding the house. And then, um, and then the rest of it was just, you know, if anybody's ever gone through this process, you get a full check, but because you have a mortgage, it doesn't go to you. You immediately sign it over to the bank. And then depending on the bank, they're going to depend how you basically get that money. It's going to be very similar to a, uh, like a new construction loan where you're getting draws. They're having someone go out to the property, inspect where it's at, and then they'll cut you another check. That was just more a pain to go through that process. Like I could have got the house rebuilt a lot faster if I just had that money in hand and I wasn't having to go through the bank for like these inspections and them cutting the check. And I understand because they're trying to protect, they're trying to protect their, you know, investments. That's their security in the property or that's their security on the loan. Um, but all in all, the insurance process was, was fairly smooth. Uh, I will say on the back end, now that I have a brand new cabin, it's not as smooth because I'm like, Hey, I built a nicer cabin. I want to increase the insurance. And they're like, no, not interested. They're like, yeah, we're going to be dropping you at the end of this year. So I'm like, well, thanks guys. That's great. Um, but the, the process on the front end was, was, wasn't that bad. Okay. A a few questions there. Uh, did you, what did you do to educate yourself during this process? In other words, uh, for, for if it, this happened to me, I would be watching every YouTube and every Google search I could possibly do on insurance claims. Uh, what did you do there? So, um, yeah, I did the same thing. I went and I, I tried to understand the policy I had. I was glad I had a pretty solid kind of loss of use uh, part of the policy. Um, I had some sort of rider that you know, enabled you to get another like 15% or no, maybe 20% more, which was helpful. Uh, all in all, I was pretty well insured. So like I ended up building a lot bigger cabin back, but if I were to build the exact same cabin back, I think I probably could have done it for around the amount I got from insurance. Uh, a lot of people were like drastically underinsured. I know that um, just from talking to different people that, you know, some of them even had their houses for sale when they actually burned down and their insurance is covering like half of the cost um, just because where they're at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the big education process was just figuring out how the heck do I take this burn down um, blocks and build another house? So that's that's really where I feel like the hard work started. And you got it done, right? Uh, there is the, the silver lining is you did rebuild uh, hold on. I want to, before we get into that, I want to ask a couple more things about the insurance. Um, are you harder to insure now? In other words, are you going to have to find another carrier, another broker, and are they turning you down because of this? Or what does that look like? So I think the area is harder to insure. I don't know specifically if I'm harder to insure. Maybe I don't, I don't understand all the intricacies of that. So like one of my properties I have in North Carolina, they I have a different insurance carrier with them. So I tried to go through them and said, hey, would y'all, I got another property over here. Would you insure this? And within about two hours, they got back to me and they said, hey, we ran our algorithm or whatever. And it's uh, the fire risks too high. We're not insuring anything right there. Um, so, and then my current, my current carrier, um, they were going to let me stay on 
But all of a sudden, my house was worth, you know, a good 40% more because of what I rebuilt. You know, we did the pool in the basement and just like, we just built like the absolute ideal house for the lot and what we could. And so, you know, as soon as it was done, I was massively underinsured. You know, um, I was probably had 70% of like what I would actually get back if the thing burned down again. So I, I was able you- to. I was able to get another policy, but it was just a lot more expensive. It was probably at least double. Same carrier. Different carrier. Oh, different carrier. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. And again, double in this area, you know, insurance in this area is generally fairly, uh, or at least traditionally been fairly uh, inexpensive. So even double, uh, do you feel like it's, uh, you know, breaking the bank there? I mean, is it a a reasonable number uh, today? I feel like it's fine. You know, because I have the same, I have the same loan on the house, which is really low interest rate. The house is going to do a lot better than it did before because it's a brand new, really, really nice pool cabin with an unobstructed view. So I, I feel like the, you know, the rents are not going to cover it. No problem. And still, I'm still going to have a lot of meat on the bone. Okay. So uh, how the hell did you handle all this mentally? You're already dealing with some really hard times and I'm sure the wife was freaking out and the whole family's freaking out. And oh my goodness, this is so crazy. Uh, how did you get through it? Well, oh man. I mean, honestly, the first little bit was just like, I was in shock. I mean, I just was in shock. I I was already away dealing with my own grief for my stuff with my brother. And I just uh-huh. was like, I just can't, I just can't. When something really crazy in life happens, it's like your, your, your brain just can't even calculate like what's happening. I'm like, there's no way the cabin burned down with our first renter in it after we spent a month getting this thing ready, I'm like, there's no way that happened, but it did happen. So I don't know in life, you know, the way, the way I see it is, okay. We just had to deal with the grief of it. Like this is horrible. This is horrible. This happened to us. This is not our fault. We had no control over this. Like, I mean, if there's any time in life to be a victim, this was like our time to be a victim because I'm like, man, we, this just, and it's total act of God. Like, man, it just, we just had no control over this. Um, so after about a week of that, I just, I just flipped it completely. Um, just try to take like, um, you know, like I know you like extreme ownership. I just try to take a real extreme ownership view of things, you know, cause I'm like, that's all I can do. You know, I could sit here for the next year and complain and whine and why did this happened to me? And I can't believe it. And what are the odds? And I just was like, man, I got over there to the neighborhood and it's just like a war zone, literally. I mean, my street, every single house burnt down. So Mm. all the metal roofs are up in the trees and on the ground. I mean, it just, and I just made a commitment to myself. And I told my wife later that day, I said, I'm going to be the very first person on the street to get our house rebuilt. Set it go. Um, I was just like, I'm committed to that. Mm. Um, And so, you know. That says a lot about you, man. That's huge. You know what I mean? Anybody else on the planet would go up there and just like give up and say, man, this is dumb. I'm never doing this again. And you, you wrote down a goal. You were like, dude, forget it. I'm going to, I'm going to knock this thing out of the park. That's huge, dude. I mean, that's huge. We need to hang out more often. So uh, then you decide, okay, we're going to, we're going to build up a little bit here. We're going to, you know, maybe a little bit, slightly nicer home. So then I assume you threw money in out of pocket. How did that look? And also how did you find a builder? This is also probably the worst time in the world to find a builder. Uh, so, so how did that whole process look? So it took a lot of no's before I kind of got to a yes, you know, and that's a real principle for people like kind of holding that belief because 
I thought for sure, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get on the phone. I've dealt with construction and builders in lots of different places. I'm like, I'm going to get on the phone. People are going to feel bad for me, you know, because the, this fires just happened. And, you know, I'm going to find some builder that's going to be like, hey, man, I'm going to put you at the top of my list. That's awful. Your cabin burned down. But no, I mean, people just, for the most part, they were sorry, but like, it just they just didn't really seem to care that much. And so, honestly, the first three or four people I talked to, they're like, I remember one guy, really nice guy, great reputation. You know, he's like, yeah. He's like, I could probably get yours started about 15 months from now. And I was like, no, nah, that ain't going to work. And I had about three or four of those where they either said, yeah, I'll put you on my list to start in like a year. Or it was like way more than even I was getting for the insurance. And so um, I don't know, like, you know, one principle I think of um, from the book, like the magic of thinking big, he's like, you know, the how to do it always comes to the person who believes they can do it. And very easily after about three of those no's, I think I could have just been like, man, this is literally impossible what I'm trying to do. Hmm. I want to get this rebuilt in like a year. And this is just impossible to do. And I just like didn't accept, I just didn't accept that. So I just started people I knew. Um, I had a good friend here from Greensboro, Mark McDaniel. I think Avery was actually recently on his podcast. Uh, He's invested over there for a long time. Great guy. I started calling him. Who do you know? Who can connect me with? I would talk to those people. If they couldn't do it, I would say, who can you connect me with? Who can you connect me with? And just eventually I just found somebody that was willing to do it. Um, you know, not someone who's like doing a lot of like single home builds, you know, somebody that does a lot of more building with investors and stuff. And I just, just figured it out. Um, you know, I just eventually, I mean, I had to go through like 10 people literally to find somebody that said they can do it on a reasonable timeline and what I thought was like a reasonable price. Um, and then in that whole process, one of the guys I met with, um, Cause I had heard like the pool cabins over there were doing better. And a lot of people doing new construction, we're doing pool cabins. And one of the guys I met with did some building, but he did more property management stuff. And he worked for a company that manages just hundreds and hundreds of homes over there. And so when I sat with him, I was like, Hey, give me like the straight, like how, how are the pool cabins doing compared to other cabins without a pool? And kind of in that conversation, he just really convinced me I've got to figure out anything I can to build this cabin back and make it be a pool cabin because we have nothing right now. And if this is going to be a future investment for us, like what do we got to do? So that was a tough pill to swallow because it was a lot more expensive than what I was getting for insurance. And it felt like a huge risk. It's like, I'm about to put a bunch of money into something that's not even going to be ready for more than a year from now. You know, and if you talk to a lot of people over there, people are like, it took two years for this guy to build it. They said it was going to be a year. So I had no idea how long it was actually going to take. Um, And so, I mean, now looking back, it's like, well, it was a risk that paid off, you know, Um, because the house I have is going to do a lot better than the house that was there before. So did the builder you went with come in from somewhere else that you like shipped him in? No, he, no, he works there. It was local. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Um, and you now have purchased another burned down lot on the same street. Yeah, here's the crazy thing. I mean, after my house was finished, no one on my street has even started. Not one person. Because they're all relying on insurance and other people. I have no idea what is going on. I mean, some of the lots hadn't even been demoed till till recently. 
I mean, now I think they've all been demo, but not one other person has has started a build. So after about one full year that happened, one, I was like, man, I got to build some other houses just for the sake of my street here. That's like a war zone. <laughs> I mean, luckily, each of the houses is like, you know, they're like 500 feet apart. So it's it's not like, you know, you have a renter and then a burned down house. Like, I mean, they're pretty spread out. Just the it's a really cool neighborhood. Um, but yeah, about, I don't know, almost a year ago, even while ours wasn't even done, I started making offers on trying to buy other lots. Because once I understood the process of, okay, this is what you do on a burned down lot. Uh, you know, this is what you do if the septic is still there and the well is still there and, you know, part of the foundation and the header wall. I just kind of understood a bit of the process of it all. So I was like, man, in an ideal scenario, it's actually, I think, easier to rebuild a house on a burned down lot than go to try to start from scratch somewhere else. Um, so I just started making offers on land. I mean, I think a lot of other people were doing that because a bunch of the original offers I made, none of them got accepted. But yeah, we eventually were able to get one accepted. And literally, uh, as you and I are talking right now, just just starting on the new build, uh, two down, two down from, from my house that I just rebuilt. A couple of questions on that. So could I uh, have just, uh, and I assume this is what the neighbors did, is why I, why I bring this up. Could I have just taken the check from the insurance paid off my mortgage and kept if there was anything left and kept that and then sell the, I would assume that at that point, you know, the dirt is just the dirt and I could sell that. In other words, I'm basically just trying to recoup my losses and forget about this thing and move on. It is, was that an option? And is, is that what you think your neighbors did? I think that's an option for some people. Um, I will say, you know, my loan amount was a lot more than what I got back from the insurance company. So for me to do that, maybe I would have broken even after I, if I was able to sell the land for a decent price. So I think it just kind of depends on how well insured that the house was like my neighbor. I I don't, I never got to meet them My neighbor right next to me that the house was under contract when it burned down. Um, and I know they ended up selling the lot. And I think the lot has sold like twice since since it burned down. Um, so I think if you have an, enough insurance money, you, you could have done that. Otherwise, yeah, I don't know. Some people, though, like one of my neighbors, um, you know, it was a couple partners owned it in LLC. They couldn't agree what to do. And it just was it just was a mess. And only recently did they end up selling the lot probably like two months ago. You know, those fires were like. 20 months ago or something. Mm. Did you re so you re you reuse the septic system? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh wow. No issues with that. Okay. And then what about the well? It was ready to go, needed a new pump or anything? Yeah, we put a new pump in it. Um, and that was it. Um wow. I think we ran new like uh wires and um put a new pump. Um aside from that, yeah, it really wasn't really wasn't so in my house specifically, it's on a very steep slope. And so what we did, it it had a really solid uh, header wall. It's basically like, man, you go and park and there's this huge header wall. And then the house kind of goes over the mountain. Everything got demoed except that header wall. And then we just built, we we built back on that header wall and went right back to the um, existing footers that were in the ground. Mm. Uh, but we just added, we added an extra story to the house because we put uh, a pool in the basement. 
Well, so it sounds like in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty good lot to build on. I mean, you already had, okay, so first of all, that lot would be expensive if you got an, sounds like this is a really smoking good view, right? Yeah. Yeah. I sure. mean, this is probably like a top-notch primo view. So that's yeah, expensive. Every, every level, every level has a view. So even the basement, the lot is so steep, even the basement balcony is 25 feet off the ground. Hmm. Are you sitting in this home right now? No, no, I, but I, I do live in a log cabin though. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Cause it looks like maybe with the, with the, especially with the, uh, the mountain picture there, Yeah. but, uh, yeah. So you got a primo view. That's worth a lot of dough. You already have a, I mean, a well could cost, I mean, it could cost 20 grand for sure. Uh, and then of course the septic system, which isn't all that pricey, but getting the permits and everything is a massive pain in the rear end. Um, so to be able to reuse that, this sounds like a pretty good uh, place to build if you had to build. So man, listen, what an incredible story. Unbelievable what you've been through and to, and to take really probably the worst possible thing that could happen. Like the day after you buy a, a, a vacation house, it's gone. It's horrible. And and you made lemonade with it, man. You know, I mean, it's incredible. It absolutely says a million things about you and, and your family and uh, and the power that you had to to rise above it. Uh, man, I don't think there's a – if there's a light at the end of this thing, it's like, who, who better for this to happen to? Because you crushed it, you know? You, like, really absolutely crushed it. Um, and, and, and fantastic. What's next for you, Bobby? Where are we going next? Yeah, I know you got a few other rentals and, uh, yeah. what was, what is your, what is your, uh, you know, 20, 2024, 2025 look like? Man, tying one thing back to like what you just said. Um, I learned this in ultra running. I think it's so true to life and business. There's a famous saying in ultra running. I think, uh, David Horton, famous ultra runner. Um, he's in his seventies now. He said, it doesn't always get worse. You know, you could be 70 miles into a hundred mile race and your mind is telling you, man, the way I feel right now, it's only going to get worse. Like by the time I get done with this thing, there's no way I'm going to be able to finish. But the reality is sometimes in these long races, by the time you get to the end, you have this euphoric feeling where you don't feel like you ran 90 miles. And so, and everything I've been through, I just kept that in mind. Like when you're going through something hard in life, everything inside of you is going to tell you man, it's, it's only down from here, you know? And I just kept reminding myself like, nope, just like an ultra running, like it doesn't always get worse. It actually can actually get way better from here. And I would just, I would just offer that to anybody because it's just a true thing in life. Um, yeah, for me, uh, man, going forward, uh, you know, I love to, uh, I coach running and do some leadership coaching and stuff. And I just love that. I love helping other people that have big dreams to just kind of go try to give them courage to go after their dreams, uh, whatever they may be, uh, and take a risk on themselves, take a risk on life. Um, we hope to keep investing. Uh, you know, I hope to continue to maybe build some houses out there. And we love uh, investing in areas that we like to go run in the mountains. So, <laughs> um, you know, I've identified a bunch of places. I mean, a bunch of places <laughs> that I would love to um, own vacation rentals and, um, yeah. And just honestly, just help other people to, uh, do the same thing. I just really have a heart for, you know, helping kind of give people courage to kind of go after whatever dreams it is they're trying to go after. 
I love it, man. Huge, huge stuff, dude. Awesome stuff. Uh, you already mentioned a couple of books, one of which was, of course, uh, Extreme Ownership, Jocko Wilnick. What was the other one there that I missed uh, the title of? Uh, the Magic of Thinking Big. Magic. I'm not familiar with that one. I'm going to write that down and read that. Finishing a book today, so I'll put it on the list. Uh, where do I run if I want to run in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park? Lots of places. Um, if you're willing to really do some awesome mountain running, um, uh, Cave Alum Trail up to the top of Mount LeConte is probably the most epic uh, run that you could do in the park. Uh, you get all the way up to Mount LeConte's almost 6,000 feet. Really, really amazing. Um, running on the Appalachian Trail uh, through the park. Uh, actually, there's a lot of ultra runners that will do the entire thing in one day. It's like 75 miles uh, through uh tennessee and north carolina the appalachian trail goes all the way through the smoky mountains national park um so tons of tons of awesome trails okay i've actually done uh mount leconte myself uh, it is incredible awesome. all right brother um listen i can't thank you enough incredible incredible story i am uh, <laughs> uh i'm speechless it's it's incredible man um thank you so much for your time and uh and on behalf of Short-Term Rental Management and Bobby Harrington, don't overthink it.